This episode is sponsored by the Learn Jazz Standards Inner Circle. If your goal is to level up your jazz playing this year and feel confident improvising over jazz standards, the Inner Circle has everything you need and more. With monthly jazz standard studies, a library of powerful courses, and a vibrant community of like-minded musicians, you're guaranteed to improve your playing every single month. Podcast listeners can get 50% off their first month when you go to ljsinnercircle.com. That's ljsinnercircle.com or find the link in the show notes. Now, on to today's episode. All right, what's up, everybody? My name is Brent. You're listening to the LGS Podcast. And if this is your first time listening to the podcast, I want to give you an especially warm welcome. And if you are a regular listener to the LGS podcast, welcome back. So glad to have you week after week. And before we get started on today's episode 39, like I do every week, I want to invite you to become part of our jazz community if you haven't already. And the best way to do that is to go to learnjazzstandards.com slash newsletter sign up there you're going to be getting weekly jazz tips and advice from us and not only that you're going to get on the inside of things that normal listeners and users do not get you'll get a free ebook for signing up so if you haven't become part of our jazz community yet be sure to do so at learnjazzstandards.com slash newsletter okay so now i have a very very special guest today but before i introduce him I want you to take a listen to this bootleg recording. You're listening to the marvelous trumpet playing of Don Hahn. Now, you probably haven't really heard of him before, but he's actually a jazz master that I believe has not gotten enough recognition. But out here in New York, he's a big deal. He's been on the scene for a long time. He's played with Maynard Ferguson. He's played with Buddy Rich. He's played with a lot of different groups and a lot of amazing musicians. He's even spent time on the road with the Beach Boys at one point in time. Don is an incredible musician, and I am lucky to be able to play with him regularly. Now, today is really all about talking with Don and getting to know him better, hearing about his life, hearing about his career, and trying to get on the inside of the way he thinks about music and the way he thinks about jazz. This episode 39, I got to sit down and talk with Don about his life and about his music, and I'm excited to share this conversation with you. So without further ado... Here's Don Hahn. All right, I got on the show today one of my favorite jazz musicians here in New York, a guy I look up to a lot uh, and a guy I'm honored to play with regularly, Mr. Don Hahn. Don, thanks for being on the show today. Uh, My pleasure. Looking forward. Okay, so um, how did you first get into the trumpet? Uh, what, what started you on that path, and, and how did you get into jazz? Are they connected together? or? Yes, they are. It started with my father, who loved to play trumpet on the weekends. Mm-hmm. 
He was terrible, but he enjoyed it. And uh, <laughs> he loved two people, Louis Armstrong and Bunny Berrigan, uh, two virtuosos, and Louis also loved Bunny. So I had those records around all the time. In fact, I learned those solos. Uh, it was like solfege almost, but um, didn't realize it was. I knew them note for note. And when I started playing the trumpet, he had a terrible old trumpet, but I, I just picked it up and did it on my own my own way, which is in some ways good. You develop a lot of bad habits, but you also get by and really are able to move ahead in a funny way. I was able to play most of I Can't Get Started except for the high notes at the end. When I went to the first teacher, he said, oh my God, we have to change a whole bunch of stuff. But <laughs> it was my father in 78s. Uh, I was about sixth grade, I guess, where I started really getting interested. When I went to junior high, there was a, a good music program, a very good music teacher who my father knew. He uh, played in a polka band on 86th Street. And uh, he, he played all the instruments, so he got me going the right way, and they got me to a couple of good teachers. And um, the last good teacher I had was in high school, Bobby Woodland, Bobby Madera. He taught so many people in New York, and he was, he was an old lead player with Machito, something like a Billy Butterfield type of player. But he studied legitimately with Frank Venezia. He had a, a system which is a little dated now, but it got a lot of people going to like a G over high C in trumpet language, and uh, he was quite a great teacher. He, he taught us in high school, he taught a bunch of us in the Army, and then he taught my students when I taught at Columbia University. So he had a long run with the students. Uh, he died, I guess, in the mid-70s or mid-80s, I don't remember. He had Parkinson's, he was in his 80s himself. A great guy, a great teacher. I think one thing that strikes me uh, when you're talking about how you got into all this is that you really were just learning this stuff off of records by ear from the beginning, you know, the, the, the music your dad was playing and all this stuff, and, and you were picking it up that way. That was how you first got into it. Like you said, you know, when you first got in with your teachers and they had to fix all these things yeah. because you were learning it by ear. But that's so much so how uh, the tradition of learning jazz and, and a lot of music is anyways. Well, Maynard used to say it killed him that I, I learned the hard part. Learned, I learned how to play music, but little things that people that don't learn that way, they, they start right from the the books in the proper way, they never get that, or it takes them a long time to get it. Here I had that, but the, the little problems that they solved when they were in high school, I was still suffering with the endurance things, maybe, or proper tonguing, but things you could fix. It's just I was lazy. Yeah. And when you say Maynard, you mean Maynard Ferguson, which, yeah. who yeah. you played with, by the way. Uh, tell me like about how important Maynard Ferguson was to you, both uh, as a budding musician and in your career. Very funny. Uh, I was studying with a teacher at the time, and uh, this is back in 1961. They had these Daily News-sponsored mm -hmm. jazz concerts at Madison Square Garden. You saw five major acts for $3. Wow. So I went to see Can't Cannonball Adderley. No. <laughs> it was uh, Cannonball Adderley, Chris Conner, Maynard, Dave Brubeck, and Louis Armstrong. So uh, I was supposed to go see Louis. That's what my... Uh, father wanted me to go see. My teacher said, maybe you ought to go see this other guy, because I wasn't really aware of just how the trumpet had advanced. No disrespect to Lewis, but I mean, uh, it had gone way further than that, even with Roy Eldridge and Charlie Shavers. But this was something that I just didn't expect. He came out and played an intro to the, the last eight bars of Hey There You, The Stars With Your Eyes. It was like a four octave gliss. I almost threw up all over myself. And uh, I never even heard Lewis that night. We went about a month later to an amusement park in Manhattan, uh, or in Queens, not the Bronx, Freedom Land. It's now a big project. But he was playing there, so we got to see him. But uh, that's the first I saw Maynard, and I was really introduced to uh, over high C playing, how, how much it had changed. Yeah. 
then I started <laughs> I started stalking the poor man. He lived across town from where I lived in Manhattan. So I used to wait at his apartment to talk to him and uh, get his autograph, anything. Yeah. Uh, in high school, he was playing a place that's now a gentleman's club called the Metropole. Mm. And uh, you could stand outside of the glass doors. You'd catch my father, knew Henry Red Allen. You'd catch him, Charlie Shavers, Dizzy, Maynard, Woody, all these people. And uh, I'd wait outside, and he eventually would start signing me in so I could stand, be inside underage. I went there five nights a week. My mother told him I failed high school because of him. <laughs> but, but, I mean, I really got to know him as a kid. Now, he had his uh, misfortunes. He wound up getting involved with Timothy Leary, which was a little strange. He left the country and came back in 1970. And when he came back, he was a different person. He was into yoga and uh, playing great again. And that's when I, I knew some people in the band and they recommended him to me, and um, or me to him, I should say. And um, he took a shot and he liked it. And uh, after a couple of months, I remember asking him about, do you remember signing my yearbook? And he says, great, you know how many yearbooks I signed? And I just went through this litany of like, well, you know, when I was in high school, I did this. And our high school was right near the Metropole where I used to rehearse and I was there every day. And he turned pale. He went to the front of the bus and said, uh, guys, you remember that dream I always told you about, uh, about this kid haunting me? Well, here he is playing flugelhorn. <laughs> <laughs> it was really quite funny. But uh, I did haunt the guy. But he, uh, he did become a very close friend. And years later, uh, when I was off the band, he'd invite me to sit in or play a night here and there. And he always was nice with my mom, remembered her birthday because they were a month apart. He never let me pay when I uh, went to the Blue Note to see him. Incredible cat. I mean, How many years did you play in the band? I was only on a year, 1974 to 75, and then he called me to go to Germany in 86. for. A, he said a European tour was one weekend. <laughs> it was funny. And that was a nice one. That was us opposite Chick Career and uh, Bob Minster Big Band. Oh. So it was, it was a nice, uh, nice run in Berlin, no less. The, the wall was still up, so we got yeah. to see that. So uh, who? Okay, So who today would you say are your jazz heroes, your jazz trumpet heroes, or just in general, your jazz heroes, the people that, uh, you know, I always have musicians that um, thus far in my life, I always just seem to come back to them. Who are those guys for you today? Well, I'm a little prejudiced. The West Coast guys, Connie Condoli was always my main man. Yeah. Uh, Don Frackerquist and uh, Jack Shelton for sure. Stu Williamson, people forget about him. But then in New York, you had Kenny Durham, you had Art Farmer, who I got to study with, uh, Nat Adderley, uh, Clark Terry, how could you forget him? I mean, it, it was really two coasts. Chet Baker was both coasts, and I loved him, and I got to know him too. Um, those are the guys I really go back to more than anybody. But then I started reaching in other directions. I, I love Bobby Hackett. I used to hate him because I felt... Uh, Everyone told me I sounded like Bobby Hackett, and I thought they meant I had no chops. But <laughs> oh, <laughs> but it really wasn't that at all. I mean, it's just that was silly on my part because uh, he did have chops and he played beautifully. And uh, as you get older, you appreciate that more. It was Bobby and Ruby Braff and uh, mm. someone that you're going to play with uh, with me, uh, Warren Bechet, yeah. who's uh, yeah. extraordinary in every way. I mean, he can play beautifully. He's got the all the chops he needs, and uh, he's an incredible cat. And he's yeah. one of the few out there still doing it today. I love him. Hey everybody, just taking a quick break from today's show to talk to you about our e-course, 30 Days to Better Jazz Playing. You know, I get emails almost every day from jazz musicians asking the questions, what do I practice and how do I practice? They know where they want to be in their jazz playing, they know how they want to sound, 
they're just not exactly sure how to get there. And that's why me and the LGS team have created our new e-course, 30 Days to Better Jazz Playing. 30 Days to Better Jazz Playing is an audio e-course that brings you through 30 days of focused, goal-oriented practicing where you're going to be working on things that will actually improve your jazz playing. This course is designed for all instruments and for all skill levels and is really great for anybody looking to practice with purpose and to make real improvement in their jazz playing. If you want to learn more about this e-course, go to learnjazzstandards.com slash 30 days. That's learnjazzstandards.com slash 30 days. I hope to see you in the course. Uh, any favorite gig stories? You know, I know I've heard a lot of interesting stories from you. Is there any uh, stories that you just always uh, go back and think about that have happened to you in the past? One of the funnier things, and nobody mentions it, uh, there's these road stories they publish on the Maynard page. Uh, I think it was Labor Day weekend, and uh, we stopped. We were coming in from Canada and going to Philadelphia, and uh, I had to use the bathroom, so I got off the bus in Canada. And I left all my stuff on the bus, my passport, my everything. I come back out and the bus is rolling through the border. And I'm in Canada. It's in the United States already. I'm thinking, oh, this has got to be a joke. Oh, then it man. stopped. And they knew, the guys at the border knew I was you know, with the band. So I started running after the bus. And then it took off. So I had to go back and wait there. Thank God he had great managers, these two English guys, uh, Ernie and Don Garside who were on the bus, and they realized after about a half an hour of barreling down 95 that I wasn't on. So they stopped the bus, and I think it was in Rochester, and um, they had to get me a ticket from the Canadian border to where they were. It took about five hours, and by the time I got there, everyone was pretty looped from just uh, waiting for me and uh, going into bars. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, <hanging out. laughs> and we were supposed to be in Philly that night, and we didn't show up. A lot of people thought maybe we went over a cliff. Nobody called. And when we got to the hotel, half the rooms were given away, so uh, we all had to double up. I think Bruce Johnson and I wound up uh, doubling up that night, and Maynard kicked somebody else out of their room. But it was it was really quite a funny thing. Uh, I never thought that would happen, but it did. When when I hear you play, you have this incredible command over what I call the jazz language. Just understanding the history of the music, understanding how to play over chord changes, a deep understanding of the repertoire. Um, and it may seem like a superficial question, but how, you know, if you're talking to someone that has no idea, that, that just wants, that doesn't know where to start, how do you go about developing, learning that kind of language, that musical language? I did it accidentally, and I, I heard Warren, we did a clinic together with Bob Arthurs, who was a third trumpet player, he organized it. And Warren said it, that the, the best thing you can do and it's the most important is just listen. Mm. Listen, listen, listen yeah. to as much as you can. As a kid, I did nothing but listen. And um, that's really how I did it. And I, I memorized these things and uh, I found out I had perfect pitch. So it was really easy for me. Uh, and I found a style that was comfortable for me. I mean, I, I don't go into the Freddie Hubbard or the Woody Shore or the modal stuff. I mean, there's a lot of young guys doing that. Richie Fidali does it excellent, Philip Dizak. But uh, I do, of course, they can do the other thing, too. It's, the, it's just they've advanced right, beyond. Yeah. But I stopped at a certain place. I stopped in the, the Connie Condoli, Kenny Dorham, Mart Farmer, if I may say that, uh, area, I guess the 60s, 70s. And uh, I like it there. I'm comfortable there, and I don't feel mm. I have to do anything else. Yeah. Uh, it's not about not wanting to advance. It's just that's my voice. That's not. what I hear. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Bobby Hackett played the same all his life, and that 
that one record he made with Jackie Gleason is still selling millions. That, that's one of the reasons he had a, a scene with Gleason because he, he was offered triple scale or a percentage. He took the triple scale not knowing that record for 50 years is going to be a top seller. Yeah. Beautiful playing. You're a mentor to a lot of uh, younger musicians my age uh, here in New York City. And you've you seem to surround yourself by by both both uh, many different generations of musicians. Um, what what inspires you to hire younger musicians like myself? A couple of things. Uh, I went to see Maynard. Uh, I can't remember. It was a couple of years before he died. I had some serious dental problems, and then I had a cyst removed from my top lip where I lost all feeling in the. Uh, right half of it, the right side of it. Mm-hmm. So I said to him, I think it's time for me to hang it up. I don't know what I'm going to do. And he closed the door. He wanted to make sure my mom wasn't there. And he said, you have a whole different uh, duty, so to speak. You have to uh, you have to keep playing, obviously, and, uh, and do what you do you, you, as well as you can do it, but then get out of the way and let people around you network and develop and, uh, and grow. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, they can't do it. They can't, like... The gig we do at Fat Cat, a lot of yeah. young guys couldn't get it because they're not known. They give it to me. So I keep the, the guys there. That I mean, the younger guys are playing great, too. The guys my age, a lot of them are lazy and tired. I'm still out there running around as best I can. Yeah, that's true. Of course, the young guys give me the energy. But in doing that, I'm staying I'm staying around. You know, I'm, uh, uh, I'm with them. And uh, they're giving me the energy. At the same time, they're getting they're getting to network and meet other people. And Maynard used to say, if uh, if you keep doing it and they like you enough, they'll drag you along with them <laughs> because right. they're going to find another way to to get to where you wanted to go. I mean, like uh, we did it one way, my group of people, and then kind of stopped. And clubs aren't what they used to be thirty years ago, but there mm-hmm. are other ways to do it. But ment- I mean, the mentoring thing—it's like uh, another thing. When uh, John Mosca, myself, and a couple guys I know. In the late 60s, early 70s, Tony Scott used to run a session at a place mm-hmm. called The Dome, D-O-M. And I remember going in, and it was empty. It was, we went in there, maybe there were six people. I think it was a big pizza place. And you'd see, like, uh, Jimmy Nepper, uh, Al Cohen, Tony, Joe Newman, McCoy Tyner. Wow. Uh, you know, or, or uh, Barry Harris. And uh, nobody was there. It was an open session. So they'd ask you, you guys want to play? And we said, yeah. And... Uh, Bill Hartman, I remember, was very nice to me, the trumpet player. And you'd play with them, and they'd give you some pointers and some advice. It was the best education you could get. It was a chance. And uh, chance, they yeah. gave us that chance. And I, I see a lot of young guys, uh, trumpet players, that know who I am and like me. And it's kind of uncomfortable for me. I, I don't think of myself as that elder statesman. I kind of almost feel like I'm their age because I'm hanging out, but I'm not. And uh, they just want a shot to be able to get up there and try and, and be heard and maybe meet some people and have those people hear them. And it does me no harm to let them play, even if they were terrible. What's it going to do to me? You know, I'm still there, and I'll play the next tune. Very rarely are they terrible. Most of the time, they just need a shot, and then the second shot, they mm-hmm. get better, and then that's how you do it. And then when they get to be my age, they'll do the same thing. That's how it, it uh, spreads. Right. Yeah, that, that idea of com- continually paying it forward and, and sharing the music with other people. Yeah. And, and, and that's how, uh, you know, any music tradition, I feel like, continues on and, and moves forward is that act of sharing. And I think that's something that you do uh, incredibly well. I know a lot of people are in debt to you for that, for sure. Um, now, as far as the musicians that, that you generally play with, um, both in the past and both now, what musically do you look for in, in people that you're playing with uh, that, that, that you want to play with? 
It's funny, managers to say this is a vibe. You've got to be able to get along. Uh-huh. There's a lot of great players, I'm not going to mention names, that uh, get on the bandstand and they can play, but they bring a nasty vibe or they always have something to say. They want to correct somebody or they don't like what you're doing or they have a face. Uh, most of the people I use can't wait to get there. They're looking forward to play. If you make a mistake, you'll figure it out. And uh, it's got to be a group effort and uh, and everyone cooperates and everyone enjoys. If uh, one guy's got to push a mile long, he's not happy, uh, don't come. <laughs> There's a million guys in New York that are waiting for that shot. You know, at my birthday, I think six trumpet players sat in. Some of them were great and some of them were young getting there. And I loved every one of them, you know. Uh, Especially, I had two years, and you know, where uh, it was very hard for me to get anything out, so I really had to play cautiously. But people supported me, and it was never a bad word said. And if that can happen, you know, you got to encourage young people that they're just starting. It's not like they're bad. They just haven't had the shot yet, the chance. They're learning. And, And they don't have the same amount of clubs. When I was a kid, you'd go to a million sessions. The sessions are crowded now at Fat Cat and at Smalls because yeah. they're the only two. So you see the 20 tenor players lined up waiting to play 10 choruses each, and, and it's kind of hard to sort them out. And I mean, Brandon Lewis has a great way. He just says, everyone take three choruses, you know, and try to be a little uh, considerate of the other guys that are there. It's, it's, it's important. But that's how you learn. Right. On those lines, uh, outside, of, outside of listening to jazz, which we've already talked about being incredibly important and and the way you confirmed you started as a musician more than anything else. Uh, What would you say for for an aspiring jazz musician, um, someone who's trying to get this figured out, who's who's trying to, who's in the middle of their studies or just trying to get started, what would you say is, is one of the most important things for a jazz musician to be working on in the practice room? I mean, Mosca has a great uh, system. Like He tries to do his technical studies in the morning for about, an hour, for about an hour. You warm up, get the muscles going. Some people, I never did this, but a lot of people transcribe a lot. They'll mm-hmm. transcribe solos and you know learn to play them. They get a feel for the guy who was playing it and how he was thinking and the, with intervals and articulation and such. That's a way, transcribing. Listening to death. I mean, uh, some people always have it on. Not the kind of listening. I see a lot of kids listening to the rapper stuff of today they just have earplugs in their ears and if you ask them what was the last tune they heard they wouldn't know it's just like a, the bell in Macy's it's constantly ringing but you don't hear it it's passive listening not active listening I mean if you have if you're listening to something really listening and uh, taking it in you know uh, like I used to listen to uh, I know Monk did this uh, Sasha Perry told me this uh, he'd play one tune for 12 hours to learn it and uh, once he did that I mean whenever he played that tune it was there so some people take a day on a tune or maybe five tunes in a week or something, just to really get it down so uh, there's no question as to what you're playing. That, that's a, an approach, but listening is the most important thing. I've listened to so many different kinds of trumpet player and uh, different styles, and I, I kind of know where I want to be, but uh, I, I love Woody Shaw. I mean, uh, I don't play like that, and I never will, but it's certainly something to listen to. you know. And uh, I know a couple of people who played with him. His musical director was a very good friend of mine, Clint Houston. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Listening is the most important thing, uh, as to as much as you can. Maynard used to say that. Listen to people you hate. Uh, don't just listen. Interesting. To, he said, "Don't just listen to me." He said, "That's that's boring. Listen to people you hate and get a full picture. You know, listen to things that you wouldn't normally listen to. Like try and." F- he told me when I was in trouble. It was very funny. Listen to six people, six of your favorites, the last year of their life. How did they get the music out? When I was really going through this. Oh, that's interesting. And, and I did. And I mean, like poor Freddie Hubbard and Thad Jones had a tough time because they were incredible. And when their embouchures were damaged, it was very tough for them. 
Ruby Braff uh, just couldn't breathe. He had emphysema. Uh, Chet Baker, when he finally got it together with the teeth, played better than he did in the olden days. He really sounded great. It's unfortunate that he died the way he did. Uh, but Connie Condoli was my man because he was going through chemo and his teeth were falling out and he was in all sorts of pain. He cut maybe a fifth off his playing range and maintained his sound, his identity, and uh, his style. Never, uh, the last album he made, I, I listened, I thought, what bothers me about this? And he, he wasn't playing over a certain point, but he sounded beautiful. So there's so many things you could learn just from listening and, and analyzing, yeah. too. You can't just listen and forget. you got to know what you're listening for and what you're listening to so you can get something out of it. I think something uh, that you're speaking to is... Uh, you know that that goes beyond just age is playing in your limitations. You know, I, mm. I know I had a a teacher um, who once told me to just you know he noticed I was uh, kind of just very stressed about wanting to play something that I just wasn't at the time capable of doing, mm. and he just told me to play within my limitations the best that I can. And I think when you're talking about Conte Condoli and all and all those guys like that is. The reason they're masters is because whatever their limitations are, they can just kill it. They can do it incredibly, whatever they do. They're just so musical. And I think that's such a, a big focus. Would you agree? Like, just being musical with whatever you possibly have. Definitely. And Lee Morgan was another one like that. Ironically, Lee and Conti did do a record together. It's not too hard to find. I think it's a live thing at the uh, Lighthouse in California. They did about four tracks together. But uh, it's a very important thing. I, I learned it because I kept trying to do what I couldn't do anymore. Uh, play a little higher, play a little harder, and a little longer, and I'd die. And I remember Maynard said, if you keep pushing it that way, it's going to get less and less as the night goes on. If you stay within your limitations, you're going to go beyond them without even realizing it. But you have to you have to cooperate with the instrument in your body. You can't fight it. <laughs> you can't right. fight both of them. Right. And then while you're doing that, you're trying to create and think. So it's hard to create and uh, criticize at the same time. You really Ooh. can't do it. Yeah. So you got to you do the criticizing in the morning and then the creating in the afternoon. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, give it a little. You got to give a little space, and that's easier said than done, as yeah. every musician will tell you. All right, well, Don, I want to thank you so much for coming on today, taking the time out of your day to come and uh, talk with us and everybody uh, for the podcast. And I just appreciate having you. Oh, this was a ball. I'm so glad you asked me, and I'm looking forward to playing. All right, that's all for today's show. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Don as much as I did. And if you have any comments to make on today's episode and you're on the website, you can leave a comment for us in the comment section below. Go to learnjazzstandards.com, go to podcast and find this episode 39. Leave a comment in the show notes. And remember, if you got any value out of today's podcast episode, consider adding value back by leaving us a one-time monthly or annual donation at learnjazzstandards.com slash support. That just helps us continue to produce this podcast and keep the episodes coming out week after week. We're going to be coming out with episode number 40 next week. Hope to see you then.
Hey, podcast listener, would you like to ask me a jazz question and get it answered here on the show? Then go to learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask. That's learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask. I look forward to hearing your question and answering it on a future podcast episode. Learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask or find the link in today's show notes.